Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, so open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and let me begin in prayer. Father, we come to you right now. Be with us. Be with me. May the words I speak honor and glorify you. In your son's name, amen. Amen. The Broadway musical Hamilton is an absolute masterpiece. The level of storytelling and character development that we see in this musical is beyond anything I understand. As as an audience, you begin to watch and, and to process what's happening in this story. The musical is about these two lives of these two men, one being Alexander Hamilton, the other one being Aaron Burr. And you get to watch as an audience, you get to watch their lives progress from when they're teenagers to eventually when things don't go the way they should. And as, you, as the audience, you begin to watch these two characters, these two characters who are foundational in America, what becomes evident very quickly is the willingness of both Hamilton and Burr to do whatever it took to get to the top. What you begin to see transpire in the lives of these two men, while praised for the, in the world for their tenacity and their hard work, they actually, actually demonstrate the destruction brought about by pride. And so by the end of the play, one man is dead, while the other man's life is destroyed. Let me give you the last words, the, the words that this character Aaron Burr sings. It is a rap a little bit. I do apologize. I will not get into the rap, which I can not well, according to my students. But listen to this. This is Aaron Burr. He said, when Alexander aimed at the sky, he had been the first one to die. But I'm the one who paid for it. I may have survived, but I paid for it. Now I'm the villain in your history. What we see at the end of the play are two men, two men who, while they worked hard, while the world looked outside and said, you are willing to do whatever it took, I look at it from the Christian eyes and say, this is what pride leads to, which is destruction. So... As we continue in our study of Philippians today, the message of today's passage can be summarized through Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The series through Philippians that we have been going through, we have entitled Joy in Unity We decided on this book and this topic because we understand how divisive this season has been to the broader church. And we wanted a moment to refocus our eyes on what it means to be one body, one church, what it means to be together and the joy that comes through it. And today's passage continues in Paul's broader argument 
against the factions and divisions within the Philippian church. Specifically, Paul is addressing the need for humility. The need for humility amongst its members if they ever desire to have unity once again. And this humility which Paul will describe is none other than exemplified in Christ. So today we come to this famous passage, this well-known piece of this section of Scripture, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and we look at this idea of our joy in Christ humility. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Let me read it for us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is one of those passages you could just let it be, and it would work well. Our passage today is actually bracketed, or, or like I like to say sandwiched, um, by two verses that to provide the reader with a framework with how to understand the passage. You begin in Philippians 1.27 where it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then underneath at Philippians 2.12 where it says, Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul is arguing to this church that is dealing with division, dealing with factions, dealing with disunity. He's arguing to them, if you are going to strive to live for the gospel, if you are going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, this passage is for you. So Paul begins in verse 1 with these four rhetorical questions. And that brings us to our first point, which is unity through humility. This section will talk about unity through humility. 
So Paul begins with these four rhetorical questions. Here they come across as any comfort and love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. But in the original language, you're going to see an if before these. Because the, the idea coming across is, hey, um, you should do this. It's kind of like in the Galatians. We see this in Galatians when Paul's speaking to the church at Galatia, and he says this in Galatians 3, 2 through 5. Um, church, uh, you're going a little crazy here. And he asks them these questions. Did you receive, receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's absurd. And so Paul begins this, this beautiful section with those same ideas, those same rhetorical questions. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Like, like, do you understand what it means to be in Christ? Like, you are perfect because of him. You stand firm before God because of what Christ has done. Does that not encourage your soul? Does not, that not provide you peace? He says this, he goes, is there any comfort from love? Does that console you? Like, right here, it's not really clear if he's talking about God's love, Paul's love, the love for each other. And I think he maybe might leave that vague for a reason. But he says, is there any comfort in love? Like, really, is there any comfort from love? Does the Spirit not affect your heart? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Is there any affection or sympathy? These questions are not questions that he actually expects the answers. He actually expects a smug nod like, yes, Paul, you know us. You understand us. Like, these are absurd that you would ask this. And Paul's like, I know. I'm setting up the argument for myself because I know you're going to answer yes to these questions. Yes, it's awesome being in Christ. Yes, I'm comforted by love. Yes. I mean, encouraged by being in the spirit. Yes, there's sympathy. Yes, there's compassion. So Paul's like, yes, let me, let me start the game this way. Let me start the argument on, my, on this path, and I'm going to begin. So he says, if that's true, he begins with a command now. And he says, complete my joy. After setting up his argument, Paul is about to lay before the church what he wants more than anything else. Yes, this is a church that has just given Paul tons of money to kind of survive. To kind of, hey, Paul, you're in prison. We, we're going to provide for you. But Paul says that, that no, that's, that's not what I want. Well, Paul was thankful for their generous hearts that sustained him during a difficult season. He understands the problems in that church are bad. And that there needs to be a deeper need for unity in that church if they wish to live a life worthy of a gospel. And if that will happen, then a major shift in their perspective needs to take place. A generous church without unity is a dying church. So Paul says, complete my joy. And I understand this. A few weeks ago, I had a about a month ago, I had an opportunity to go back to California and visit friends and family. And many people asked me about the trip, which was an amazing trip. Um, and they asked me what was the greatest part about that trip. What, what did you enjoy? Like, I got to study the Bible at a very deep level. I got to see my parents, which I haven't seen in like a year, two years. 
And I, and I, and I, and I said this, what was my, my most encouraging, what completed my joy for that trip? To sit, next to, to sit across the table from a band I mentored and see him progressing in the faith, see him diligently looking to God's word for him, for his wife, and for his future kid. And that brought me joy. And that's the same thing that is bringing Paul joy, is that Christian maturity. So when Paul begins to explain what will complete his joy, I understand the heart behind it. And what is this? What will complete his joy? Humble thinking. Humble thinking. In a world that prizes strength in the world that surprises, do what you need to do to get it done, Paul says, no, let me, let me refocus your brain. What's going to complete my joy is humble thinking. And so he comes to this, this section and he says, how are you going to complete my joy? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and having, again, and of one mind. Many commentators see a pattern here that places the word mind at the beginning and at the end. And again, it's a sandwich to bring the other two ideas within this one sense of unity. To see this as one complete idea. So if we are to possess the same way of thinking, and then we will also possess the same love. In the same being, the same spirit, not the idea of a Holy Spirit, but the same bond together the ESV uses of one accord. And so when Paul is saying, hey, we're going to think the same, he says they're going to be the same loves and the same, the same unity together. We've got to be very careful here. When we think of thinking the same, we're not saying that we all have to love the same things, believe the exact same things, look the exact same way. There's a word for what that is. It's called a cult. When we all have to think the same way, look the same Wear the same sneakers. That's a cult. And unfortunately, many churches can prone towards that because they start fighting for these preferences instead of fighting for the gospel. So the same thinking that Paul is describing is not this, this false unity based off we all wear a certain type of clothes, we listen to a certain type of music. He begins to lay out below what that same thinking is. So Paul's argument to the church at Philippi, therefore, is not be a cult of Paul, but have the same unified mind that is exemplified in the humble life of Jesus. His humility, which will bring you all the same into the same love and give you one accord, bring you into the same mind as that Christ, which exemplifies the humble life. And that's the beauty of the church, right? We don't all have to look the same. We don't all have to act the same. We don't have to listen to the same music. I listen to rap music. Most of you guys will think rap music's horrible. I think, I think that there's rap music that honors God. And that's okay. I can think you're wrong. You can think I'm wrong. That's the beauty of the church. Some people think I should wear a tie like David. <laughs> he looks better than me. That's the beauty of the church. We can look different. 
But when we're unified in Christ, that's the unity he's talking about. So Paul wants from the church that they would understand what it means to have unity, and for that they will thrive. In that they will thrive. And so he begins to explain what is this, what is this humility look like? What does it mean to be humble? And he explains it like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul next counters this beautiful unity with what breaks down that unity. What destroys that unity? And he uses two words here. He says selfish ambition or conceit. The word selfish ambition here is actually used to describe the canvassing of politicians who are trying to promote their own agenda. We have all seen those political commercials, right? My name is blank and I support this ad. Look at how wonderful I am and how great my ideas are that will solve all your problems. With that in mind, we understand what selfish ambition looks like sometimes. The hardest thing is sometimes selfish ambition takes the form of good plans, good intentions. See, sometimes that's where it begins to creep, especially in a church. It begins to move from, hey, this is a good thing to this is my thing. And no, no longer is the unity there because the heart has gone awry. And you begin to be unfocused on what it truly means to be humble. The next word we see here is vanity or conceit. It's a very interesting word. This is the only time we actually see this word in the New Testament. We actually don't really see it in the, old, in, the, in the Greek Old Testament. We see it in some wisdom literature outside the Greek Old Testament. And the word is empty glory. And this word will play a huge part in the second half of this, of this passage. Throughout this argument, Paul uses a lot of word play to rebuke the Philippian church. We have seen him use the word think, have this mind, think this way. He'll do it later on. He'll use the word form in multiple different ways to help us see that there's different, like the form of Christ, how he changes and in here, this word for empty glory will be used later on to specifically talking about how Jesus emptied himself. And Paul hopes that the Corinthian church looks back and say, wow, our empty glory is what is destroying the unity of this church. And while we are giving ourselves empty glory, the Son of God emptied himself of his glory on our behalf. Why do factions exist? Because we become focused on our own agenda and our own empty glory. Because we become focused on what we feel is our own rights. Therefore, the church becomes divided. And theirs was a one I was not ready for when I began studying this passage. But 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19 says this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Why are there factions? Because, first of all, we have our own agenda. We think we know what's best. Why are there factions? Because we feel like we have our own rights as human beings. Why are there factions? Because people's hearts, can get, when they get challenged, may demonstrate that they actually truly do not know Christ. So Paul says there are factions among you because people who claim to be Christians... When, when the struggle hits, when, they're, when, they're true, when the trials come about, their true heart displays something different. So Paul is calling out this wrong way of thinking. He does so believing that the Holy Spirit residing in the Christians of the Philippi, residing in the people who would eventually re- read this letter, that the Holy Spirit would transform that heart of disunity to bring about unity, that the Spirit will convict these men and women who are divided so that they once again will be unified. Paul moves back, moves back again from the negative to the positive, saying, think like this. Again, Paul using a word um, that he will later use to describe the way of thinking that is humility, the way of Christ thinking. Paul uses a word here that he again later uses to describe Christ. And that is humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul describes the humble mind as saying, you are more important than me. My rights are less important than your rights. And so we come to this idea of humility. It's where the rubber meets the road. When I say you're more important than me. Story of two men. Emily and I, once in our marriage, we, we, we kind of hit something. We had to go down to one car. It was a unique season of our life and and I was a pastoring at a church at this point, and I'd get to church on Sunday mornings at about 6 a.m. So most church members aren't coming to church at 6 a.m. And, uh, and so I only had one car. Emily needed to eventually get to church. We were new to the area, so we did not really have much. We didn't know many of the people at the church at this point. It's a bigger church. And so I go, I need a ride. So I, I begin to, to ask people. I, I, the first person I ask is the person I knew who'd be there at 6 a.m., and I asked this gentleman, I asked him, I said, hey, um, I don't have a car. Um, something happened, and my wife, we're just down to one car. She needs the car to get the church later. Um, can you pick me up? He, I was on his way. I was probably about two minutes out of the way. And he goes, no, that's too much of an inconvenience for me. Wow. What do you say that? Thumbs up. At that moment, I don't trust him. I don't care how good you preach. I don't care how good you lead. I don't care how many ministries you do. If I'm an inconvenience to you, you begin to show your heart. Second man, about three weeks ago, I needed a ride home from Harrison Airport. 
I live about an hour and 15, 20 minutes that way in Kitchener. I'm struggling to find some ride. I call this one brother up. And I say, hey, I need a ride. Can you give me a ride? He says, sure, when? Was an inconvenience to him. I ended up, he ended up waiting an hour and a half, two hours outside of the airport. And every single time I said, I'm so sorry. He said, don't worry about it, man. His excuse was that he was watching the hockey game. He's listening to the hockey game. That man, that brother, I would sacrifice anything for because I know I'm not an inconvenience to him and he loves me. His sermons now impact me in a deeper way because he considered me more important than himself. This man sits right here in front of this front row. Why does Pastor David's sermons impactful to me? Because he considered me more important than himself. And if he does that on a Tuesday night when no one watches, he does it on a Sunday morning when he's in front of everybody. A tale of two men. Considering others more important than themselves. crisis has taken place that has revealed an area of spiritual immaturity in, our, in, a church, in the church life. And that is what COVID has really struggled to the church. The code has taken my right to do X, Y, Z and said, I don't care to consider others more important than myself. And because unknowingly much of the church has lost the understanding what it means to consider yourself as less, we have considered ourselves more. So Paul begins this grounding of this, this argument to what is humility? What will bring back unity? What is what the church needs? And that is humility. What is he grounded in? And he begins to ground it in the exaltation of Christ in his humility. That's our second point for today. The exaltation of Christ in his humility. And this grounding is so important. It's like, a, it's like the difference between a mom, when the mom and dad, when they just tell you to do something. Parents, you know what, you know what that's like. Hey, I'm, I'm telling you to do it. Instead of a parent explaining why they should do it. And it begins to focus. I remember when I was a kid, uh, we used to go camping. Any of the campers here like to go camping? Okay, and there, there's, there's going to be a little argument here because some people consider camping like I'm in a tent and on the ground with a sleeping bag, and that's probably about it. Then there's some people who are hardcore like, I ain't camping. You aren't camping unless you're outside in the wilderness. Well, my family's type of camping was we had a motorhome. And so we would go into the middle of the woods or RV parks, which aren't really the woods. And, and we would go in our camper, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, and our little dog, Tuffy, um, a little poodle who thought he was tough. And, and because we were a good camping family, uh, and I was a good camping kid, uh, I liked to watch TV when we were camping. <laughs> Again, yes, there's judgmental eyes. I deserve every aspect of them right now. But we would go camping, and... Uh, my, my, dad would, my dad had a TV, and 
I would want to watch, especially if there's a game on, I'd want to watch the game, so that's a little more understandable. But my dad would have to take the antenna. And, and so in an RV, I don't know if any of you have been in an RV, but what you have to do is you kind of have to pull down this little circular thing, and then you begin to use the lever, and it gets the antenna to go up, right? And eventually the antenna's up, but then the dad needs to kind of move it around to get that antenna in the right place to get the direct access to whatever station I want. And eventually, Lord willing, if my dad did what was right, we'd get the TV. And so in the middle of nowhere, I could watch my television when we were supposed to be camping. And just as an antenna on a TV needs to be repositioned every once in a while to get the signal back, our thinking needs to be refocused. As it's easy to transition good thoughts into selfish thoughts. As it's easy to forget what Christ really did on our behalf. So Paul now grounds this humility within the church in the person and work of Christ. Why was this church at Philippi struggling with division? Because they had forgotten who Christ was and what he did for them. This section is typically known as the humiliation of Christ. It lays before the reader a clear and concise picture of the depth of sacrifice that took place when the Son of God became man. So Paul says, think this way, Philippian church. Think this way, Arendelle Bible Chapel, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Don't let that phrase just pass over too quickly. Because that phrase begins the, the, uh, the ascent that Paul wants us to know. This short phrase has so much meaning into it. It begins to explain the grandeur of Jesus Christ. Some will push back here on this passage to say that either Jesus was not fully God or that he was some type of model of God because it's, not, it's his form. But we have to understand that Paul right here is not writing what I would call a Christology or a study of Christ. He's not writing a systematic theology. Paul is arguing for humility. And so when he says he's in the form of God, he's trying to say, he's trying to use a terminology that he will use later as we see he's in the form of a slave, in the form of a human being. But we come to the Bible, the Bible is clear that Jesus Christ was fully God. Fully God. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hebrews 1, 3. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. I'm going to just break down some of these words. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. The end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. No one can come to the Bible and get anything besides the fact that Jesus, his disciples, the early church, all believed Jesus to be God. So to come to God's word and say that Jesus was just a good teacher is an absolute lunatic argument. It's idiotic. 
as, G- as Lewis puts it, Jesus is either a lunatic, liar, I will add another one, he's a myth, or he's actually Lord. So, when we come to a passage like this, and it says that Jesus was in the form of God, we have to look at what that means. If we're going to look at what that means, if we're going to understand the impact Paul wants this to have, we have to understand what that means for Jesus to be God. And also understand the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the Bible, the God of the Bible is what we call a triune God. Meaning that he is one God but three distinct persons. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each fully being God, 100% God. And each fully being a distinct person. These three persons of the Trinity have been God from eternity past, but have also remained the same in the same perfect and loving relationship from eternity past until now, until eternity future. God the Father fully loving God the Son, about to fall. God the Father fully loving God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son fully loving God the Father and God the Spirit. God the Spirit fully loving God the Son and God the Father. So when we come to our passage, we understand when it says he was in the form of God, that God the Son has always been God the Son. He being God the Son is not less than the Father, not more than the Spirit. John 10.30 says that Jesus talks and says, I and the Father are one. The term used to explain this relationship between God the Father and God the Son is what we call eternal generation. I say this not to impress you because this is a very weird, difficult concept. I say this because I want to paint a picture. I'm trying to paint a, a portrait to get you to understand what it meant for Jesus to sacrifice. So Jesus being in this eternal generation role, eternal meaning forever, that was easy, Generation defining the role of sonship. This is Matthew Barrett on this topic. The word generation means coming forth. And with reference to the Trinity, it refers to the sons coming forth from the Father's essence. The concept takes us to the very heart of what it means to be for the Son to be a son. He is called, he is eternally from the Father, which is why he is called the Son. To be more specific, from all eternity, the Father communicates one simple, undivine essence to the Son. We also have the Athanasius Creed. This was in response to a, a heresy in, four, in the uh, fourth century, uh, yeah, fourth century A.D. And now I'm going to read this. And this up on the screen. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human. Equally, he is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the, God, to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one. However, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. 
He is one. Certainly not by the blending of his essence. He didn't become 50-50, but by the unity of his person. Just as one person is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. So why do I say this statement? Why do I read these very technical ideas? Because I want this is where theology meets life. Your a shallow theology of the Son actually leads to broken relationships. But when we begin to see the picture of who Jesus is, it brings us to this next sentence, this next statement, with even more awe. It says this, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. While he was fully God, fully equal to God, 100% God, he did not consider that equal to be God. And in understanding his rights as God, understanding his glory as God, understanding his, 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 his personhood of God, the Son of God from before creation understood his role within the Trinity, understood his role in salvation, and understood our need for his work. And he was willing to submit to the plan of God for you. What does it mean for Jesus to be equal? He has every right of worship. He has every right to be praised. He has every right to pour out the wrath for sin. And then what did Jesus do? What does it look like for him to, to not consider equality with God to be grass? He emptied himself. After saying that Jesus was in the form of God, after saying he did not count equality with God a thing to be grass, he said he emptied himself. And this is where we get to the heart. This is where we begin a very strong rebuke against the Philippian church. He says, you are running after your empty glory. In Christ, what did he do? He emptied himself of his glory. What does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? Paul is specifically helping us see um, that Jesus emptied his glory. He emptied himself of the glory in heaven for a period of time. When Jesus emptied himself, he did not become less God. It's impossible. God cannot change. That who's who God is. So for Jesus, when he became a human being, he could not change his characteristics as God. Jesus always, even as a baby, was the Son of God, fully God. But when he emptied himself, he emptied himself of his right, his right, his right to be worshipped and glorified in heaven. You actually see Satan try to tempt Jesus to return to this, right? One of the last temptations in Matthew 4, 8 through 9, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to him, I will give you all things if you fall, all of you, I'll give all of this to you if you will fall down and worship me. The whole point of this passage is to get the Philippian church to understand what it means to deny yourself even if you feel it's denying your rights and placing others higher than yourself. And that why is why Paul plays on the words to get their attention. 
And as much as you can do it through the written word, Paul looks at them. He looks at them through a letter. He says, your factions exist because you desire what's best for you. While your Savior, you worship, considered you so important that he gave up everything that he deserved for you. Feel the heart of that. Feel the pain of that. Feel what he is trying to get you to understand. When we run after our own rights, we run after what's best for us. We look at Christ and we go, what did you do? You gave us up. You gave that all up for me. Just picture this. Isaiah 6, 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice at him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And look at the contrast from Luke 2, 6-7. through And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see the contrast right there. Jesus was worshipped by the seraphim. The, The foundations of the threshold shook at his words. And in a moment, he was in a manger in swaddling clothes giving up all of that, knowing what was coming for him. 2 Corinthians, 2, 8, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. When Jesus stepped down from glory, he did it for you, He did it for me. He did it understanding what would come about, knowing all of history. He did it knowing the pain and suffering he'd go through. He did it because he knew we needed a Savior. The Son of God says this, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. When Jesus became man, he did it because we needed him to do it. The Son of God stepped down to become human because we needed him to become human. While he was perfectly in the form of God, still in the form of God, took on the form of flesh that he would understand us understand our pain, our sickness, our loss, rejection, temptation. Hebrews 4, 14 through 15 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. As a human being, he would live the perfect life we could never live. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. As a human being, he would suffer the righteous wrath of God for the sins of his people. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus who stepped down from heaven for you and for me. This is the Jesus who took on the wrath of God on the cross that first Easter Sunday that you might go to heaven, that I might see Christ, see God for eternity. And this is the Son of God who stepped down from heaven knowing all of this would take place for you and for me. He gave up his rights as God that we may live. You're in here and you've never come to Christ. If you've never professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the Jesus of the Bible who fully is God and fully died for your sins and for mine. Confess with your heart that Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This is the beauty of Christ's humility. So Paul asked the Philippian church, how can they continue in factions? How in the world can you continue in divisions when this is your Savior? When he gave up every right for you. And I ask us as an annual Bible chapel, how will we ever allow divisions within our church when Christ did this for us? Now Paul finishes this section by reminding the Philippian church that Christ did not stay in the grave. Christ's end was not to suffer. Christ's end was to be exalted. Therefore God has highly exalted him on exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I go back to the verse I began with Proverbs 29 23 one's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor that verse while being a very proverb is speaking fully of what Christ did the end of Jesus was not suffering but exaltation and exaltation is that, that is a beyond all our imaginations there is a day we may not see it but there is a day we will all see it. I don't know what I was about to say. There's a day when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in awestruck worship or in dread and fear. Revelation 6.16, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And just as Jesus was exalted after suffering, so will we be brought to him after this suffering, 1 Peter 5.10, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
If Jesus was exalted after his suffering, can you trust that one day, even if you suffer, even if you give up all your rights for the person sitting next to you, if you are willing to do that, will you not believe that Christ will exalt you? Can you believe the words of the one who died for your sins, that giving up your rights in this moment for the person sitting in front of you, behind you, next to you, that saying they are more important than me, can I trust that he will do much more for me than I can ever do for myself? Why is this joyful? The exaltation that comes from considering others. Why is that joyful? Again, Paul is writing to refocus the vision of the Philippian church. Reminding them of what Christ did for them. Reminding them of what is true greatness. Well, at the beginning, we we talked about this play of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr and how they thought they had reached greatness, but they actually reached destruction so Paul, so Christ, so this word says true greatness really does come from serving others and being in Christ. When you consider others more important than yourself because of Christ's sacrifice for you. Because in Christ, your true exaltation never will come in this dying world. Finally, the joy that comes from humble unity. We know that unity that the unity Paul desires for them and for us will ultimately bring us joy and flourishing. Unity within the church will ultimately bring us joy and us flourishing. Unity rooted in Christ will bring us joy and flourishing. And when we consider others more important than ourselves, as Christ considered us more important than himself, then our church will thrive. Conclusion. The question I leave you with is this. How does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ affect how you see others, how you care for others? In response to this section, Paul calls the Philippian church to now work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Therefore, I call you today in response to what Christ has done on your behalf on the cross, stepping down from heaven. How will you work out your salvation in fear and trembling? Paul's calling us not to lose focus on the work of Christ so that we might love others out of Christ's love and work on our behalf. Let me pray. Father, we come to you. Father, it is hard to be humble. It is hard to consider others more important than ourselves. But in your word, through the example of Christ, we can look at at our Savior, our Lord, who counted us more significant than himself and stepped down from heaven on our behalf. Lord, may we be a church that honors you, glorifies you, not through our generosity, not through how many ministries we can do, but through our unity. Pray this in your son's name.